Well, a number of weeks ago in, um, in our staff meeting, um, Pastor, Pastor John shared um, Psalm 27, and um, there were just some things in that psalm that, that he shared that really struck me. And, and so I, I wanted to, uh, for us to focus our attention on, on Psalm 27 this morning. So if you have your Bibles, we encourage you to go ahead and, and turn there. You know, as I just prayed, you know, we've just finished this series that, that, that Pastor Strubart has been working on that he had entitled, The Attributes of God, How Awesome. And, and so we've talked about many different attributes of God. We've talked about God's grace. We've talked about His goodness, the, the glory of God, the, the, the love of God, the the faithfulness of God, His greatness, His mercy, His holiness, His patience, His immutability, that is that He never changes. We, we focused on His peace, and then we finished up last week with the all-sufficiency of God. You know, we worship a God who is absolutely amazing. But you know, it's, it's one thing to know about God. It's another thing to allow those truths about who God is to impact our lives. And it's, you know, it's one thing to understand these different attributes. It's another for those attributes to affect how, how we live our lives on, on a daily basis. And so we can ask this question, how can your knowledge of God help you when facing trying times? And so we're going to take a look at, at Psalm 27 and, and, and look at the troubles that David is going through and see what we can learn about connecting the attributes of God with our own personal daily lives. Just a little bit of background on, on Psalm 27. Uh, we don't really know exactly what the trouble was that David finds himself in specifically, but we do know that, that David is being pursued by evil men who are desiring to take his life. We know at least of two occasions where this did happen in, in scriptures. Uh, one of them was one, when King David was being pursued by, by King Saul. You remember David had done nothing wrong, but, but King Saul was, was a jealous king. And whenever he heard that there were accolades and, and, and there were, were, were words that were being spoken about David and giving more attention to David, King Saul would, got very upset. As a matter of fact, he got, he got angry, so angry that, that King Saul wanted to kill David. Total injustice to, to David. But think about that just for a minute. Can you imagine you know, a king who's the absolute authority, who is bringing all of his might to come to bear against you as an individual? His resources are, are immense, and he's going to do whatever it takes to find you and kill you. I mean, it would be kind of like if the United States government declared that you, as an individual, were a hostile terrorist... They put your picture everywhere for everybody to see. They cut off you from all of your assets. And if anybody helped you or assisted you, they would be, be possibly put to death for doing that. I mean, can you imagine how incredibly hard and difficult that would be? Well, that's what David is facing. That's one of the possibilities. The other possibility, we're not sure, but the other occasion that we know of where David is running for his life is with his son Absalom. His son Absalom decided to do a coup attempt to try to take over the kingdom away from David. David's own son whom he loved. And no matter how you begin to think about that or unpack that situation, you know it doesn't sound like it's going to end well. I mean, if Absalom has his way, David is going to be captured and killed. And if Absalom fails, most likely it's going to cost Absalom his life. And you remember, if you remember the account, David initially doesn't even want to fight against his son, and so he runs, he runs away, and he tells his troops that, 
that, that if they do it, engage him to try to spare Absalom's life. I mean, again, think about how horrible of a situation that is. Your, your son is wanting to take your kingdomship away from you and have you killed, and you don't want to fight against him because you love him, but yet you end up having no other option. I mean, either way, both of those scenarios are terrible, terrible scenarios. Now, I, I don't know where you're at this morning. Hopefully, you don't have anybody who's pursuing you that wants to kill you. Um, but, but needless to say, I really do believe that what, what David has to say in Psalm 27 is applicable to every one of us, no matter where you find yourself, whatever troubles that you might have. With that being said, let's go ahead and, and stand together. Let's read from Psalm 27. We're going to look at verses just 1 to 6. I'm going to be reading from the NIV, Psalm 27, beginning in verse, verse 1. Let's read together. It says, The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? When the wicked advanced against me to devour me, it is my enemies and my foes who stumble and fall. Though an army besiege me, my heart will not fear. Though war break out against me, even then I will be confident. One thing I ask from the Lord, this only do I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze on the beauty of the Lord and to seek him in his temple. For in the day of trouble he will keep me safe in his dwelling. He will hide me in the shelter of his sacred tent and set me high upon a rock." Then my head will be exalted above the enemies who surround me. At his sacred tent, I will sacrifice with shouts of joy. I will sing and make music to the Lord. You may be seated. Well, if you do have the, uh, the, the bulletin, if you want to follow along there, there's a place for some blanks for you to, to fill in as we, we go through the message this morning. The first thing that we see in this, in this passage is our source of hope our source of hope. This psalm begins with a focus on theology. David focuses specifically on three aspects of who this God is that gives him hope. The first of those is that God is light. God is light. You know, light drives away darkness. It drives away evil. Light is the thing that shows us the way. In Psalm 119, 130, David himself says this. He says, the unfolding of your words gives light. It gives understanding to the simple. And you know, while it's true that that, that is true, David uses this metaphor for light here not just to refer to his word, but he also uses it to refer to God himself. You remember in, in John 1 and in 1 John chapter 1, the apostle John talks about Jesus being the light. And Jesus himself says that he says, I am the light of the world. So to walk in the light is to follow after God and to stay away from evil. So light's this idea of purity, of, of holiness. There is no sin found in God. It's just the idea that God is true and that he is just. So God is light. Secondly, David acknowledges that God is, is salvation. This refers to one who delivers from evil. If God delivers, then victory is sure. And it brings this incredible hope to, to David's heart. And then lastly, he says here that God is, is stronghold. You know, a stronghold is a picture of a fortified city. It's a, it's a place of rest and, and security. 
And David is able to say that even though he's being pursued by his enemies, that he finds God is his, his stronghold. So all three of these, his lights, his salvation, his, his stronghold, he finds great hope in God. Secondly, we find here he says that our source, God is not our source of, of hope, but God is our source of courage. You know, theology was never meant to just be knowledge and information. Notice that God, David here does not say that God is, is light, salvation, and a stronghold. David here says that he is my light, that he is my salvation, that he is my stronghold. I mean, how it is amazing is it to think that, that God, that David here can say that the God of the universe is his God, for him to say he is my God. Theology was never meant to be impersonal. It was never meant to just be knowledge that we unpack away, that we pack away in our minds as interesting facts about God. No, no, theology was given to us so that we might know God and be drawn into relationship with God. I mean, to know God personally is engaged in your life brings courage. It's been said that the more you get to know somebody, the greater your ability to truly love them. My uh, my wife and I are coming up on this August. We will be married for, for 36 years. And, you know, and this is tr- certainly true for us. The more that I've gotten to be able to know her, the more the ability that I have to be able to, to love her. And certainly that is true about God. When you think about how amazing God is, the more that we get to know God, the more we learn about him, the more that we are able to, to love him. So the- theology just doesn't just define who God is. Theology also helps to redefine who we are as a result. You know, over the past three months, as I've already mentioned, we've been studying these different aspects of who God is. And if these qualities are true, then what are the implications of those qualities in our own lives? I mean, how do these truths about who God is impact how we live? Notice in in this psalm, in Psalm 27, notice what David says here when he thinks about his enemies. How does he respond? In verse 1, he says, whom shall I fear? In verse 2, he says, of whom shall I be afraid? In verse 3, he says, though an army besiege me, he says, my heart will not fear. Though war break out against me, even then I will be confident. I mean, David's theology about God, about who is this God, is impacting how he lives his life. I mean, if God really is my light, if he really is that, then I don't have to be afraid of darkness. I don't have to be afraid of evil men. I mean, if God really is my salvation, then I'm saved from my enemies. And we can, welcome, we can come to understand more fully, you know, that, that Jesus come. We come to understand more fully that Jesus came to seek and to save the lost. We understand that our enemy is not just an external enemy, but we also have, have an, an internal enemy, and that is indwelling sin. And so we need to be saved not only from that there's things that are outside us, but we also need to be saved from our own selfishness and pride. You know, we don't just hope in some theological understanding of salvation, where we're forgiven by God and declared as righteousness. Our, our hope is a personal God who provides salvation through relationship. Jesus didn't just die on the cross for some theological ideas. Jesus Christ died on the cross for individual sinners as an actual substitute for us. People are not saved by some abstract concept of salvation, but a God who took our sin upon himself and took the penalty of our sin so that we 
can be saved. My point is this, it's not enough to just to know the facts about Jesus as Savior. They need to be acted upon by faith. You need to acknowledge your personal sin, that is repent then of your sin and place your trust in Jesus' death for you, receiving this salvation as a free gift that you put to your account. Being a Christian then is all, is all about a personal relationship with God. You know, sometimes when we think about salvation in Christ, we, we emphasize heaven and eternity so much that we lose this relational aspect of salvation. But notice what John says in John 17, 3. He says that this, he says, now this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God in Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. David says that God is, to know God is to have a relationship with God. And so he says here that God is not only my salvation, but then he goes on and David says that God is my stronghold. He's our refuge. He's our strength. He's the one in whom we can find rest. And once I'm in Christ, then I'm secure and I'm sealed. In Psalm 63, in 61, 3, David says it this way. He says, for you, God, have been my refuge, a strong tower against the foe. So David is acknowledging here that God is light. In him is no darkness. He is holy and, and right and true. And that you and I are needy people in need of salvation, which God freely gives to us. And when we've experienced that, then we can be safe in his stronghold. And so David begins this psalm with a psalm of, of focus on who God is. He's our source of hope. He's our, our source of, of courage. But notice then David goes on and he says here that, that, that God is our source of delight. I'm going to read again from, from verses 4 through 6. David says this, One thing I ask from the Lord, this only do I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to gaze on the beauty of the Lord and to seek him in his temple. For in the day of trouble he will keep me safe in his dwelling. He will hide me in the shelter of his sacred tent and set me high upon a rock. Then my head will be exalted above the enemies who surround me. At his sacred tent I will sacrifice with shouts of joy. I will sing and make music to the Lord. I mean, if David, if God is light, if he's salvation and stronghold, then why does God even allow troubles into our lives? I mean, how are we supposed to even understand difficult circumstances? You know, it's been said that, that troubles in our lives reveal to us what our hearts have been trusting in all along. I'll say that again. Troubles in our lives reveal to us what our hearts have been trusting in all along. When we're afraid, it's usually because there's something that we think we have that, we have, that, we, that we're afraid is going to be taken away from us. I mean, how is it that David can even respond this way? I mean, where is his focus? Well, we've already seen that, that his focus isn't on the problem, but it's on the greatness of God. And so, so 20, Psalm 27 begins here with who is God in the midst of all that's going on. He says, he is my light, he's my, my salvation, he is my stronghold. See, I would suggest our problem is that we too quickly forget who God is. How easy, easy it is for us when we're hurting and we're going through difficult times that often, so often, we, get our, we put our eyes back onto ourselves, we take them off of God, and in moments like that's exactly the opposite of what we need to do. We need to take our eyes off of ourselves and we need to put our eyes on to the Lord. 
In 1 Corinthians 10.13, the Corinthians are going through some difficult challenges. And notice, notice what, what, what Paul says to them as they go through these trials. He says, No temptation or trial has seized you except is common to man. And God is faithful. He will not allow you to be tempted or tried beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted or tried, he says he will also provide a way out so you can stand up under it. I want to just point your attention. Do you notice where Paul directs our attention concerning overcome these temptations and trials in our lives? He points to God's faithfulness. He brings our attention back to the attribute of God, and then he applies it to overcome trials. So when trials come into your life, what do they reveal about your heart's desires? I mean, what is it that you believe that you have to have in that moment? You know, for some, for many, it's success. Trials come into your life, you know, and you feel like, man, if you could just accomplish something significant, if I could just close that sale, if I could just ace that exam, then I'd feel good about myself. For others, it's they look to relationships. You know, if my husband would only do what I wanted to do, then I would be happy. If my wife was only a better cook, then I would be happy. If my kids would only be better students, then I'd be happy. For some, it's, it's possessions. I mean, if I only had that car, if I only had that house, right, then I could feel like I'm somebody and people could, would look at me and admire me. You know, for some, it's possessions. If I could just get that promotion at work, then people would respect me. I, I don't know what that is for you. But let's see what, what it is for David. What is it that David feels like he needs? Now think about it. If you actually had an army, all right, that was pursuing you, that wanted to kill you, what do you think you would ask God for? You know, maybe you would ask God for some more weapons, maybe for some more troops, right? Maybe for some military dominance. Well, let's take a look. What does David ask God for? In verse 4, he says, One thing that I desire... He says this, one thing I ask of the Lord, this is what I seek, that I might dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord, to seek him in his house. You know, David has a need for a whole lot of things, but he is acknowledging in this psalm that he realizes that his greatest need is God. To know God, to love God, to make much of God. His greatest need is to delight in God. I mean, I can assure you that David is not trying to deny the reality of the battle so he can experience some kind of temporary peace. I mean, we oftentimes try that. We try to do that. Contrary to what our world says, faith is not blind. It is not just wishful thinking. Genuine faith acknowledges who God is, what God says, and then acts accordingly. I'll say that again. Genuine faith is acknowledging who God is, what God says, and then acts accordingly. And David has learned to let go of everything else that used to define him, and now he is allowing his relationship with God to be that one thing. David sees God in the midst of the circumstances, and that changes everything. David sees that God is his light. He is his salvation. He is his stronghold. And David wants to gaze on the beauty of the Lord. Yes, David is having difficulties. But the beauty of God enables him to live in confident peace. And if our hearts delight in God and in his face, then we can contemplate losing earthly joys without fear as well. 
I mean, what is it that causes us to fear? What is it that causes us to get all tied up in knots and, and have anxiety? The reality is this. We don't, under, we don't respond to the circumstances of our lives. We respond to our interpretation of the circumstances of our lives. And what is it that, that determines the interpretation of those circumstances? Whatever it is that is ruling your heart in that moment. Whatever it is that you are seeking and you think that you have to have and you can't live without. When we allow other desires, even good desires, such as safety and victory, to be more important to us than our desire for God, we will experience fear. When we allow other things to become more ultimate to us we, and feel like we have to have them more than we are delighting in God, we're going to become frustrated. Why? Because those things will control us. I mean, think about it. If money defines you, you know, what happens when the stock market begins to tank, right? I mean, your life is going to become be, be all torn up or you're going to be in turmoil. But when your relationship with God defines you, when God is your light, when He is your salvation, when He is your stronghold, life is secure in Him. So what does it mean for us then to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord? Because that's what David says he wants to do. He says, I want to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord. Now, a gaze, a gaze is not a one-time glimpse. A gaze is a steady, sustained focus. It is to find God so beautiful that you find great enjoyment in just looking at him, at being in his presence. In verse 8, we didn't read this, but in verse 8, David says this in this psalm. He says, your face, Lord, I will seek. I mean, the idea of a face is the idea of presence. I mean, if you speak face to face with someone, you're experiencing a personal nearness with them as you're in their presence. It, it signifies that that there's this relationship that David has with God. To look into someone's face is an expression of intimacy. And what does David find so beautiful? Where does David reference God's presence in this passage? Well, he mentions the temple. He mentions the tabernacle. The temple hasn't been built yet, and so the tabernacle, you remember, was this temporary, it was this tent that they could move around. It was the temporary temple, if you will. It was the dwelling place of God. And what was it that took place at the temple? Well, if you remember, there were sacrifices that they would offer at the temple to atone for sin so that man could have a relationship with God. Warren Wearsby, in his commentary about this passage, he says that this is the Old Testament equivalent of abiding in Christ. This is what he says. He says, In the ancient East, when a visitor entered his host's tent, the, tent, the, the host was personally responsible for his protection and provision. And so that flimsy tent became a fortress. I love that. That flimsy tent becomes a fortress. He says, The beauty that David sees is not only for the glory of God's character, but it's also the wonder of God's grace to his people. See, David took time to contemplate the wonders of God's grace, and as a result, he's being strengthened from within. He's being renewed from within. I mean, what does it mean for us then to enter into his presence and gaze upon the beauty of the Lord? Well, we know that animal sacrifices of the temple only ever pointed to a greater beauty, to a greater sacrifice. 
In Philippians chapter 2, verses 6 and 7, Paul tells us that Jesus is the glorious God who came and took on human flesh. He's equally God. And yet that passage goes on and tells us that he emptied himself of his beauty. And so we read this from Isaiah 53. Isaiah the prophet says that Jesus willingly gave up his beauty. This is what it says. It says, Jesus, he had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him, nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering, familiar with pain, like one in whom people hid their face. He was despised, and he, we held him in low esteem. Surely he took up, up our pain and bore our suffering, yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him, and by his wounds we are healed. I mean, the Bible tells us that God created mankind and he placed them in a garden. They were innocent. They were naked without shame or guilt. But as a result of the fall, our beauty was fleeting due to the curse. We became disfigured sinners who lacked beauty because of our sin. Jesus, on the other hand, who was beautiful, went to the cross for us. He was disfigured by evil, evil men. He became ugly so that we who were ugly could be made beautiful by God through Christ's sacrifice. So when we gaze upon the beauty of the Lord, we need to spend time meditating on who God is, but also we need to gaze on the mercy and the grace and the amazing love of God that was displayed to us at the cross. How do we do that? I want to suggest to you we do that the same way that we're instructed in, to abide in Christ in John 15. We need to spend time in worship. We, we need to spend time in prayer. We need to spend time in, in study of the Scriptures. We need to spend time in, in obedience. Now, I, I hesitate to even say that because you've all heard that before. But what does it mean for us to gaze? What does it mean for us to reflect? It, it means that we need to start each day reflecting on the Lord, on His character, on the cross. We, we need to stop. We need to learn to rest in who God is. We aren't saved by what we do. We're saved by what Jesus Christ has already done. And we need to stop looking to other things, things that we do to somehow to define us. Notice what David says then as the results in verses 5 and 6. He says, Then my head will be exalted above the enemies who surround me. At his tabernacle I will sacrifice with shouts of joy. I will sing and make music to the Lord. I mean, this is amazing. He he, he doesn't hold, have to hold his head low in shame and in fear. He says he can hold his head high even though he's surrounded by his enemies. He can sing and make music to the Lord. How can he do that? How can David do that? He says because no matter what happens to him, he knows that ultimately he's going to be okay. He's going to be okay. When we go through those desperate moments of the Christian life, it is helpful to be reminded that the only ultimate necessary thing we need, let me say that again, the only ultimate necessary thing we need, we already have, and that is Jesus Christ. And so David expresses his trust 
as well in another psalm, in Psalm 16, verses 8 and 11. As I was studying this, I was amazed at the com- how comparable this, this um, psalm is to Psalm 27. Notice what it says, Psalm beginning in verse 8. He says, I have set the Lord always before me. I think that's another way for David to say that I am gazing on the beauty of the Lord. I have set the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand. I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my tongue rejoices. My body also will rest secure because you will not abandon me to the realm of the dead, nor will you let your faithful one see decay. You have made known to me the path of life. You will fill me with joy in your presence with eternal pleasures at your right hand. I mean, how beautiful is that psalm of what what David is saying when he gazes, he spends time and he contemplates and really thinks deeply, not only of the character of who God is, but also of what God has done and accomplished at the cross. I mean, our source of hope, he is our light. He is our our salvation. He's our stronghold. He's, He's our source of courage. He is my, he is my light. He is my salvation. He is my stronghold. He's our source of of delight. I mean, to gaze upon the gloriousness of God and what he has accomplished at the cross. And lastly, he's our source of certainty. At the very end of Psalm 27, by applying his, his strong confidence to the Lord, to his immediate troubles, he gives this, this exhortation to his own soul. Notice what it says. This is verses 13 and 14 of Psalm 27. And he changes the pronoun. He's talking to himself here. He says, I. I remain confident of this. He says, I will see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Wait for the Lord. Be strong and take heart. Wait for the Lord. You see what David is doing here? David is declaring to himself the source of certainty while he lives in an uncertain world. He says to himself, wait for the Lord, and let your heart take courage. Now, waiting seems like that's something that's passive, but this is not passive. This is something that he is intentionally doing. He is intentionally trusting God, regardless of how things appear, irregardless of how he feels. He says, I am going to believe who God is. I'm going to believe what God says, and that is where his hope is. That is where he finds his confidence. We know God is good, and we will experience His goodness in His timing, in His way, as long as we keep looking to Him. All right, so just some takeaways, some takeaways. Your study of Scripture should always lead you into relationship with God. Let me say that again. Your study of Scripture should always lead you into relationship with God. Scriptures were never given to us for an academic exercise to fill your minds with with cold orthodoxy. Scriptures were always given to us to lead us into relationship with God. And again, nothing to matter with reading through the Bible in a year and all those kinds of things, but we have got to stop and allow God's Word to lead us to relationship. Number two, The greatest need of your life is to delight yourself 
in the Lord. And this is the question. Is God enough? Is he enough for you? Or is your, are you looking for something else? And David is telling us in this passage, in the midst of those troubled circumstances and situations that he is going through, he is saying, I declare that God is enough. And that he says, the one thing that I need is to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord. Number three, take time daily to gaze on the beauty of the Lord. Of the Lord. Now again, I, I realize this is not something you haven't heard before. You know, okay, PR, we know we're supposed to read the Bible, we're supposed to pray, we're supposed to obey. I get it. But the question really comes down to this. Are we really doing that? Are we really doing that? Are we really stopping and taking time and gazing upon the beauty of the Lord? Are we delighting in God. I mean, you, you, you know, we so quickly forget. Isn't that true? We so quickly forget who God is. We so quickly forget what God has done on our behalf. And I don't know about you, but I'm not very good at resting. Actually, I'm really lousy at resting. I am not very good at allowing God to be the one who defines my life. I'm pretty good at trying to do all this stuff and allow this stuff to define who I am. And that is not what David is saying here. David is saying that he is delighting in God and allowing God to be the one who defines who he is. And as a result of that, no matter the circumstances of life, he is at rest even in the midst of all of these people chasing after him who want to kill him, which is absolutely amazing. And lastly, you can live with confidence. You can live your life with confidence. Live who God says that you are in Christ. Christ lost his beauty at the cross so you could be made his beautiful child. Live in the beauty of who God says you are. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we read a psalm like this, and we have such a difficult time trying to picture. Lord, if we had men that were pursuing us, who wanted to kill us, who had resources that were unlimited, Lord, our minds, our hearts, the turmoil within us, I'm, I'm sure would be just so incredible. And yet, Lord, we read of David. In the midst of all of that, we read of a man who says the greatest desire of his heart, the one thing that he needs, is you. Is to gaze upon the beauty of of the Lord to dwell in your presence. And I pray, Father, help us. Help us to understand what that means. Father, help us 
to commit that we're going to do that, that we want to gaze upon you, to find you as our source, and to realize that you are more than enough and there is nothing else that this world has to offer that we need other than you. And I pray, Father, forgive us, forgive me. We run to so many other things, even amazingly good things, to try to fill us up, to try to satisfy, to try to affirm us, to try to make it so that we feel okay instead of running to you. Oh God, forgive us for that and help us. Help us, Lord, to run to you and to take that time to spend with you to reflect upon you, to meditate on who you are and what you have done. I pray, Father, enable us that we might live that out then. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.